0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their Elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today.
2: I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia?
1: Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking.
2: Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr
0: Putin. I want to thank...
2: Uh, that fell down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Sit down.
0: They're, out this. They're your
2: eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs>
1: oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. It's a piece of democracy. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> G'day, welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute at ANU and also the School of Politics and International Relations. No Maria today, uh, she's been caught up doing something else, so we'll go straight to our guest... And he's an old friend of mine He's also been in the thick of public campaigns Such as the one for the Republic Going way back to 1999 I speak of course of Greg Barnes S.C. Barrister Advocate One time liberal candidate Author of several books Former director of the Yes campaign in 1999 Legal advisor to Julian Assange And I think it's fair to say Fearless advocate for the presumption of innocence Even when it is decidedly unfashionable As it has been in a number of high profile file cases and and movements in recent times. Greg Barnes, welcome to
2: Democracy Sausage. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure.
1: It's uh, probably been too long to, that, that we've taken to get you on here and uh, really glad to have you here. Um, I wanted to talk to you today because obviously the big issue of this year, the big sort of political issue, the battleground, uh, is the, the referendum over the voice to parliament. Uh, and... Inevitably, people are drawing parallels with the last referendum that Australia had, and it wasn't the same sex marriage survey in 2017 because that was not a referendum. Uh, we can sort of talk about any parallels or lessons from that as well. But the actual referendum last time we did it was 1999, the, the campaign you were uh, intimately involved in, Greg. I wonder if you could just start off talking about some of the parallels that you see between that referendum and the referendum that we are scheduled to have later this year.
2: Thanks, Mark. And it does have some parallels with 1999. I I think the most obvious parallel is the way in which the no case consists of um, people who you might otherwise expect to support the voice, um, some Indigenous leaders in Australia, um and they remind me a little bit of what you had in 1999 when you had republicans like phil cleary the former mp for wills and clem jones the former mayor of brisbane ted mack former independent uh, member for north sydney who said they were republicans but supported the no case i think the other issue too is just how hard it is to prosecute a yes case in this country you know there have been calls for further information for detail we had the same sorts of calls in 1999 and the one of the objects of the No campaign was really to confuse people uh, and the continue, continued um, calling for detail sort of falls into that trap. I mean, people are entitled to have detail, but, you know, when you're expecting uh, every scenario to be covered, um, then it really just becomes a destabilising tactic. Uh, you know, the other issue then is... Um, Uh, Which is different is you know in 1999 John Howard the Prime Minister played on if it if it ain't broke don't fix it, you know in relation to that issue of course you'd remember Mark 1999 one of the lines of the of the no case was look this is not about jobs it won't create one job it won't create any investment for Australia why are we doing it it's a second order issue so there's some of the parallels that I'm seeing. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, the people you mentioned, Phil Cleary, Ted Mack, Clem Jones, uh, former Lord Mayor of Brisbane, I think, um, these these people, as you described them, were pro-Republicans, uh, supposedly, who were advocating a no vote. And they were doing so because they fell into this camp of direct electionists. So the... Argument on the on the kind of um, pro republican side fractured between the people who were backing this minimalist model, the idea that we would have a uh, a president who was effectively the same as the governor general, but uh, you know appointed by parliament, um, selected by parliament, and it would be an Australian, and that would be where power resided within Australia rather than to uh, the British Crown. And the argument, of course, uh, for that was that it was minimal change, but it achieved that objective of establishing an Australian Republic. And then you had on the other side, uh, these people who were saying, well, if we're going to have a president, that should be directly elected. And a whole lot of issues around that. And you had this sort of fracturing between the two. That feels like a quite a familiar idea, doesn't it, when we see yeah. uh, people talking about um, you know being interested in, in reconciliation, being interested in, in driving toward a truth and treaty process, but not being happy with the way it's being done and therefore lining up on the no side.
2: Yeah, and and look, I just while you're speaking, uh, Mark, I'm just thinking. Then again, here in the no case, you've also got Indigenous leaders who say it doesn't go far enough. Yeah, um, I um, last Thursday here in Hobart was uh, speaking at an Invasion Day rally, and Michael Mansell, the uh, renowned uh, Tasmanian Aboriginal leader, uh, was speaking, and that's what he was essentially saying that you know don't buy it. And, of course, uh, that's what you had in 1999, particularly with people like Phil Cleary who were saying this is not a real republic, it's not a people's republic.
1: Yeah, um, it's it's an interesting judgment to make, though, because implicit in it is this idea that uh, some other alternative path is better is going to deliver the outcome that they say they want. That wasn't the case in, in in the Republican situation. We know that uh, it's not far off quarter of a century uh, since the last uh, referendum, that 1999 referendum. So the people who were opposed to it have delivered precisely nothing. Um, yeah. and one imagines. I think that's,
2: you know and, yeah, and that's the issue, Mark. That that if you hold out, I mean, Peter Costello said at the time. Uh, you know, in relation to the republican referendum, you, you know, you won't get a chance in another generation. Well, he was right. In fact, it's been a generation and a bit. Yeah, um, and I think that's that's the difficulty with the position that people who hold to the view that let's wait and get something better—that's that's the risk, a real risk that they run.
1: Yeah, and and also implicit in that is the idea that you can't get to something better. If you go down this path, that that this yep. precludes any further development or any further prosecution of this case of this issue, and that's not at all the case with with this referendum proposition.
2: Well, and it wasn't, and it wasn't the case with the republic. In fact, we said to people, look, you know, do you want an Australian head of state? Uh, that should be the issue. And once you establish the Australian head of state, then of course the issue of the mechanism can, of course, be revisited. Nothing lasts forever. Um, and, and, you know, institutions do evolve. Um, so I, I think that's what must be frustrating for those who are running the yes case um, in, in Canberra and, and those who are supporting uh, the voice that you're seeing this no case develop in exactly the same way, and it's potent. Uh, you know, how potent it is this time, I don't know, though, Mark, because you've got a Prime Minister who's prosecuting the case. In our case, as you'd remember, in 1999, you had a Prime Minister, very hostile, number of cabinet ministers hostile, Um, so it was much more difficult. Here, though, you've got an opposition leader who may well, for political advantage purposes, decide not to back uh, the voice and therefore to make it difficult for Anthony Albanese, but I think it is important having a prime minister on board.
1: That's true. Uh, and that's pretty much usually been the case. In the, in fact, for all of the uh, eight out of uh, 44 questions that have been put to Australia since Federation, only eight have, have succeeded. All of those have had the support of the Prime Minister at the time. Um, and only one of those questions, as I think I've said on this uh, podcast before, only one of those questions was promoted by a Labor government. So there's a there's a sort of a bias towards a Conservative voting pattern, I think, in Australia, and we see that uh, voters have tended to uh, opt for the status quo for inertia rather than change uh, and yep. have only been convinced out of that when uh, those, the change has been seen to be kind of procedural or, or in some way kind of um, um, relatively mundane, not not exciting, not not revolutionary, and when it's had the reassurance of the conservative side of politics. And that's the other critical thing bipartisanship, so support from the government of the day, which is by virtue of which a referendum comes about, and and support from the other side of politics. We don't see that at the moment, and everything that Pete and Peter Dutton is doing, um, going back to our point about sort of raising this whole you know call for detail and so forth, everything that Dutton seems to be doing suggests that he is not going to end up on the yes side. Do you think that spells the end of this, or is it the case that some other factors might come in here? The fact that um, yeah. uh, there's so many more voters on the roll since uh, since 1999, and we've seen party loyalties sort of break down as well. I mean, it, it may be that uh, old rules around uh, referendums don't apply here.
2: Uh, very true, and uh, we, of course, haven't seen a referendum since 1999, Um Does having an opposition leader being opposed to you matter? Uh, It certainly mattered, I remember, back in 1988 when the Hawke government, or 87, I think it was, the Hawke government sought to uh, make some amendments to the Constitution, uh, and that was a difficulty because the Liberals campaigned very effectively against it. Uh, This time around, it may or may not matter all that much because this issue is a little different to the Republic in the sense that I think... uh, Most people would say uh, it's desirable, um, probably more than would have said in ninety nine that a republic was desirable. Um, And I think most people think that something has to be done. But of course, it's very easy, uh, as you know, Mark, to run scare campaigns. They're the easiest campaigns in the world. I was talking to um, an advertising person the other day who said, if I was given the brief, I would take the no case every time because uh, it's easy money. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's very easy to, 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 to run that sort of case, and as we saw in '99, And I don't think that's changed. There is a real negativity. But I think the issue is different, and I think the sentiment that I'm picking up in the community, to the extent one can tell and my travels around, particularly in Tasmania, is that I, I think that you've got now state and territory governments moving on this issue of treaties, uh, some state and territory governments. You've got um, uh, strong support in the media, Uh, for doing something in relation to Aboriginal recognition in the constitution. But, of course, you know, if people get frightened into thinking, oh, this is a third arm of parliament and uh, this will give them a right of veto and uh, it's destabilising, all the sort of, you know, uh, campaign lines that might be run, then uh, you you may well see it uh, uh, plummet because, you know, it's it's a difficult ask, four states out of six uh, and 50% plus one of the national vote.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, It's it's interesting though that all premiers are supporting, uh, according to uh, what Anthony Albanese said the other day, I saw him sitting in a, uh, I think it was a press conference with Dominic Perrottet, the New South Wales premier who's supporting. So we have support from all of the state premiers, regardless of political stripe. That's interesting in itself and, and, and yeah. potentially significant, it may further weaken the significance of what Dutton and his confrères do. I mean, we already saw that pretty disgusting, I thought, uh, prejudicial position taken by the Nats way back in November, yeah. where they just decided they were going to be against it long before any of the uh, kind of arguments have been prosecuted. Uh, we've even formalized the question and the amendment that would would attach to it, um, uh, I thought that was absolutely disgraceful. And, and it showed, uh, or it really, I think, put more pressure on on Dutton within the party room to follow suit rather than pursue a split within the coalition. And, of course, opposition leaders are always very conscious of that because they're in a pretty weak position to begin with. But nonetheless, we see all state premiers behind it. W- what about in, in your state? You, you re- reside in Tasmania. Um, yeah. It's been put to me by, by some libs that they think that getting to that three, getting to that four state mark, you know, so that you've got four of the six states over 50% could include Tasmania because of the support of the Tasmanian Liberal government there. And, you know, some people say South Australia's uh, probably going to support it. Victoria's uh, probably going to support it at the moment unless things change. Uh, you'd only need one other state plus that national majority to get there. So, you know, there's, there's, um, there's reasonable prospects here.
2: Uh, look, I agree with that. Um, in Tasmania, there are certainly reasonable prospects. Uh, Jeremy Rockcliffe uh, has been very supportive. Uh, in fact, I worked for uh, Ray Groom when he was Premier of Tasmania in between 1994 and 1996, Liberal Premier, who instituted the first land handbacks in Tasmania. So Tasmania has actually been at the forefront of seeking to reconcile with its uh, Aboriginal population, although the the, the criticism now in Tasmania is that Jeremy Rockliffe, the Premier, has not moved to treaty discussions, which, of course, are happening in Victoria. But, you know, the sentiment you get in Tasmania from what you can gather is that there's likely to be fairly strong support uh, right throughout Tasmania, although the wild card here, as I say, is... Michael Mansell and his uh, preeminent role um, in Tasmanian Aboriginal politics, which he's had for many years, uh, and his opposition and the opposition of of some uh, in the Aboriginal community in Tasmania. But overall, I think the state government and I think Jeremy Rockliffe is the type of politician who, when he decides to support something, does support it in more than just a couple of statements. I think he will get behind it.
1: Yeah, that's going to be really fascinating to see how this plays out, and and, and to some extent, where we we just don't have enough information at the moment. There's a sense around the place that the yes case has kind of stalled, or that it's wallowing, that the no case is is sort of uh, making gains. It's out there in filling the vacuum, as it were, and and um, you know spreading these arguments about the lack of detail or doesn't go far enough which into you know, two things which seem to run in in opposite directions as you say but uh, we don't really know do we at this stage there's so much uh, that, that needs to happen and we're told that uh, toward the end of February uh, that the yes case will really be um, uh, felt more broadly so I I guess that uh, we, we're just gonna have to kind of um, wait and see a bit
2: yeah, no, look, I agree with that. It's early days. And, you know, the Republic campaign was a bit like that. Uh, I mean, I got recruited, I think, in May of 1999 for a November referendum, um, but it really only ramped up in the last couple of months uh, where people started to focus because they knew the vote was coming up. But was that this a mistake? A bit...
1: I mean, was that a mistake? I mean, this is an interesting point. Uh, yeah, though, look, because... I,
2: well, no, look, I'm not sure that it, it, it would have made any difference, uh, Mark. I, I think that you just had such potent opposition, and you had uh, a Prime Minister feeding into that potent opposition very effectively, I'm not sure it would have made a lot of difference. but uh, and, and you know better than uh, than I do, Mark, people tend to focus on these political questions as it gets closer to a vote. I think in relation to a voice, though, many people do have an opinion. Um, you know, if I talk to people, they, they tend to have an opinion on it one way or the other. And the views that I pick up Tend to be well. Look, it's not ideal, but it's let's get it started. Uh, or look, uh, this is a, a very important symbolic gesture; it ought to be done. I, I don't get much of a sense of people saying this is a terrible idea and shouldn't see the light of day. Um, it's 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 more about uh, and and the discourse in the media tends to be more about the the detail. Um, and so, you know. Does it advantage a yes campaign to have a longer period of time uh, to sell its case? Uh, in, in, in the case of this one, probably, hmm. because, you know, people get comfortable with the idea and realise it's not that scary. Uh, and I think that's, again, different to 1999 where people were able to run the line that this was the politician's Republican, why would you vote for it? Uh, and that was an effective line because of the anti-politician sentiment in this country, yes. which was particularly rampant at that time.
1: Yeah, that's right. That kind of really anti elitist sort of
2: uh, yeah exactly. uh,
1: reflex in in Australian culture, particularly. There are some interesting historical kind of linkages between the two as well. Not you know you being one of them, I guess. You're advocating now for a for a yes vote here, advocating a yes vote back in in that time. uh back when the politicians' republic argument uh, you know seemed to seemed to carry the day. Uh, one of the arguments. Going back to a point you just made about the idea of this not being, or the 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 notion that this is not a terrible idea, uh, the Aboriginal voice, um, it it the argument that it is, uh, which is a spurious argument in my view. But this was well, not just in my view, it is a spurious argument, uh, which was the third chamber argument. Yeah. Funnily enough, it it sort of was made prominent by Malcolm Turnbull, who is now a yes vote himself uh, and, and and presumably regrets having run that argument, but it's not a very persuasive argument. Do you expect it to have much bite?
2: I'm not hearing it as much now, Mark. I, I was hearing it uh, quite a bit and I had said, seen it written about quite a bit, but I'm not picking it up um, as much as as I was. I think it's what I'm picking up now is people just saying, what is the voice? Uh, Not so much that it's a third chamber, but, you know, what is the voice? What does it mean? And I think, you know, the context of Alice Springs and what we've seen has, you know, taken the debate in a particular direction that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, it shows the extraordinary disconnect between European Australia and Indigenous Australia and the, the sense of entrenched disadvantage and utilising the voice as a mechanism to try and uh, do something about that disadvantage. Uh, that started to creep into the debate uh, for me, uh, certainly in, in talking to people and reading in the last few days.
1: Yeah. Let's take a quick break there and be back in just a moment.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Welcome back. Now, just continuing on this discussion about the voice and the politics of the campaign and so forth – as I mentioned earlier, uh, the the argument on the republic back in 1999 uh, between those who said they were for it and those who actually voted for it was about uh, this idea of either the politicians' republic or a direct election model. And you know there were there were there were calls for more detail, and we we saw how that was used uh, very effectively by the no campaign. We see a similar thing now in the in the uh, ask for in the request for specific detail about exactly how the voice would be constituted, what its specific role would be, how people would be selected, a, a range of other things. Now, that is all, let's be clear, a matter for parliament. The referendum will be a simple yes-no question. Do you support a voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders uh, in the parliament and to parliament? And uh, if the answer is yes, then there'll be an amendment which will be included there, uh, which you'll be able to see, uh, and that will explain that the voice will be a creature of the parliament and answerable to the parliament. There will be no third chamber. There will be no question of who is subordinate to whom or anything else. But, Greg, what I'm interested in, Asking you about this is that a number of people who who, you know since the ninety nine referendum, people who were in the strong yes campaigners, have since switched to either a direct election model or something closer to that. Uh, And implicit in that is an acknowledgement that that the argument or the way it was put forward before just didn't didn't inspire, didn't uh, gather enough support from the Australian people, uh, and that the Sort of democratic bona fides of um, of of the direct election model were closer to what people wanted to see. In other words, that Republicans perhaps needed to be more adventurous than they were. The impulse to be uh, to be minimalist and conservative in proposing a change, which was understandable, uh, ended up being uh, something that couldn't uh, inspire voters. I wonder. With all that in mind, whether you think that the argument between uh, the Prime Minister and others who have said this is a matter of principle and those who are calling for more detail now, whether the yes campaigners here need to learn from 99, realise that to to not provide that detail plays into the no camp in some way.
2: Yeah, I think it's a balance though, Mark. I mean... Uh, one of the things that happened in '99 was, you know, there'd be continued scenario- continual scenarios that you know the no case had put up. Uh, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? And you'd spend all your day on the back foot answering them. Yeah. Um, and and Malcolm Turnbull, to his great credit, uh, uh, I think articulated uh, uh, responses to many of those questions in in a very rational way, intelligent way. Um, however. Uh, on the other hand, you do have to provide some detail. I think one of the issues is whether or not it's a mistake not to have an official yes case and a no case. So, you know, in 1999, as you'd remember, the government uh, funded a yes case and a no case and there was material, campaign material, which was sent out by both. The government sent it out to every household in Australia. Now, the question is, I know that the government is here has said they're not going to do that, but the question is, is that desirable if people are asking for detail. It's one thing to say, oh, you go and read this report, go and read that report. Um, If you can provide that detail and it goes to every voter in Australia, that might be an easier mechanism. Um, You may not do it the way you did in 99, which was a booklet that went to every household. You might do it online. Now, I'm not sure. There are so many other mechanisms available. But I just wonder whether um, you you need to set out um, some more detail in an official case, rather than simply leaving it to your campaigning to get your uh, to get your message across.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting point. Look, just finally on 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 this whole question of uh, the voice referendum, and the comparison lessons from 1999, I wonder where, where, what do you think about this proposition that 1999, the republic question was was a matter close to the hearts of a number of people, particularly uh, educated people, uh, lawyers, people who'd thought for a long time about systems of government and and uh, uh, the, the notion, the way Australian identity was constructed and so forth. But nonetheless, it's a pretty kind of arcane argument to be putting forward that nothing much is going to change but this is about Australia, you know, being fully self-contained in a, in a legal sense and standing on its own two feet, uh, cutting the apron strings from from uh, the mother country and the like the, the voice on the other hand is a, is a much more kind of i think much more moral case to be put and yeah. I think it connects yeah. in a deeper way with people it's about fairness it's about it it can it can be made to tie in very strongly with australia's notion of itself as a fair and sophisticated society uh, accepting that the history that we 've been told for too long. Uh, was, was, was silent on the dispossession, on the murder, on the frontier wars, the rape, the systemic, systemic racism and disadvantage that has echoed down through the generations. And that this needs to be recognized that First Nations peoples are sui generis and need to, that is unique and, and, and of their, of their own character and their prior existence and custodianship of this land for millennia. Um, needs to be reflected in the national birth certificate. That's, that's, a, that's a much richer argument, it seems to me, to put to people than the kind of changing of the letterhead feeling that was about the
2: republic. Well, uh, I hear you and I think you're right, although I would say the Republic is about national identity it's very important symbol it's an extremely important symbol about who we are as a nation and the fact that it, it is a symbol about equality because we are subject to as our head of state uh, an undemocratic and elitist institution you know twenty thousand kilometers away however, I take your point though mark I think and I think for many Australians uh, the journey, the Indigenous journey, uh, and, you know, starting really, you know, back in the 60s, but but then with key dates such as the Mabo High Court decision, um, the, the reconciliation movement, uh, which really grew in spite of uh, the undermining of it in a way by John Howard when he was Prime Minister. Uh, I think this is this is runs deep in Australian veins, and uh, I think that people will probably be more engaged with it than they were with the republic. I think in relation to the republic, it was hard to get people engaged, but I think in in this case, yes, you're right. There is probably going to be, and there probably already is, a deeper level of engagement for the reasons that you've outlined.
1: Yes, well, uh, as a uh, a very committed yes voter, I hope that's right, um, and. Uh... I agree with you on the on the republic. I'm certainly not opposed to the republic. No one would be under any illusions about that. Let's um, just in in a few minutes we've got left, Greg. Move to another issue that you've uh, spoken and and written about in the past and have strong feelings about, and that is the uh, the Israeli question, the Palestinian mm-hmm. question. Um, Because in recent days, we've seen, in recent weeks, we've seen an escalation of violence in that region. We now have, under the new Netanyahu government, described by many as the most right-wing government that Israel has ever had. Uh, we now have a coalition government with some extreme right-wing religious parties involved. Uh, they're pushing the boundaries in a number of ways. Um, uh, at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, or the Temple Mount, uh, as it's known, the contested uh, space in um, uh, in Jerusalem, uh, sacred to uh, three faiths at least. And, of course, uh, we've we've seen raids in Jenin in the last few days uh, by the Israelis against uh, alleged terrorists there. We've seen reprisals, uh, we've seen terrorist attacks in Jerusalem by Palestinians um, murdering uh, Israelis in the street. Uh, and uh, and we've, of course, got this other issue going on, which is that the government is moving to weaken the separation of powers by having the government itself able to overturn Supreme Court court judgments and the like. So there's a really strong deterioration in the, uh, the, the human rights and the democratic values uh, that, um, that supposedly uh, Israel
2: is meant to uphold. Well, just to take that last point, Israel has always and its supporters have always said that uh, its uniqueness in the Middle Eastern region is that it's a democracy and that it subscribes to the rule of law. And that has been severely tested, I would argue, over a number of years, but certainly being severely tested now in a government that is fundamentally, in many respects, prepared to rip up um, the independence of the judiciary uh, and prepared to play fast and loose with the ideas that we hold dear in a democracy. But I I think the issue in relation to Israel that I've been speaking about and others such as Bob Carr and uh, I know, is the fact that we need in this country governments to move to a, a position where there's not the sort of slavish adherence to Israel. Um, some people have remarked to me that there's a greater debate within Israel amongst those who say that uh, what's happening to the Palestinians amounts to a form of apartheid. There are others who say uh, that, that uh, there needs to be uh, the issue of statehood must be addressed because it's a question of burning injustice. Um, and you get that debate in Israel and you get a number of NGOs and particularly in the human rights space condemning the Israeli government and condemning Israel, for example, for the, the illegal settlements. In Australia, there's just so little debate. Uh, I mean, I saw on the weekend, the Australian ambassador to Israel put out a tweet condemning the deaths of Uh, in Jerusalem, uh, of uh, Israeli citizens, uh, rightly so. But you never, and it's rare to see uh, an Australian government official, uh, let alone a minister, take a stance in relation to Israel that is uh, particularly pushing the side of of the Palestinians. Um, And it's very frustrating because Australia needs to have, in relation to this debate, um, a debate which does allow for the fact that the current si- situation is unconscionable, that you have people who are born uh, and die without ever living in a state, and that you've got these this continued oppression of an entire race of people uh, living in a very small area in impoverished conditions. And Australian, Australia can play a constructive role there as a middle power, but we seem to be wedded to... A Washington line in relation to uh, Israel and been very loath to condemn it.
1: Yes, I know. Note, note that Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, is in Israel at the moment, and he's been in Cairo. He's also meeting uh, with the um, Palestinian Authority um, in Ramallah. I think after his meetings in Jerusalem, and he's saying some reasonably strong things, but they're all couched within. Uh, they're all sort of implying U.S. Uh, uh, reluctance and disapproval of the behaviour of the Netanyahu government, rather than saying it clearly. And I, I wonder whether you think that that approach uh, from countries like Australia and the US, that are strong supporters of Israel, whether whether that approach has just simply enabled this slide towards authoritarianism and aggression and the abuse of human rights that we're seeing there. I mean, there's no question there are grievances here on both sides, and and Israel cannot tolerate, you know, rockets lobbying and, and and suicide bombers and gunmen and so forth on the streets. Um, but uh, the, the the failure to speak clearly and forthrightly against uh, the direction of policy by the Israeli government seems to me quite extraordinary.
2: Well, uh, I completely agree. And there's no doubt that the softly, softly approach has failed. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It palpably, and, and it's never worked. And we know that it's never worked. Um, and, and as I say, uh, there is an opportunity here for this government to shift position in relation to to Israel. Um, the previous, you know, previous liberal governments have been slavishly adhering to any vote in the United Nations that uh, is anti-Israel or perceived to be anti-Israel. Have been slavishly adhering to the U.S. line and blocking it. There's an opportunity here for the Albanese government to. Uh, as you say, rightly uh, indicate that Israel is entitled to have secure borders uh, and that its people are entitled to live in peace. But equally, you cannot have a situation where it continually encroaches upon Palestinian land to make it impossible to get a two-state solution. Yeah, the two-state
1: solution solution just seems unviable now. It's
2: just just nonsensical, and yet we still see it parroted by Australian politicians. I know, as I say, that this is a great frustration, I think, of many in this country that there is a greater, and I've had people say it to me, when I go to Israel, you know, there's a greater debate in Israel about these issues than there is in Australia, where you tend to get held down um, as being either anti-Semitic or anti-Israel uh, if you raise legitimate concerns.
1: Yep, that's definitely the case. Greg Barnes, thanks so much for being on Democracy Sausage. I know you have to be elsewhere, so short and sharp today. it been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast.
2: Thank you very much, Mark, and it's been great to speak with you.
1: That's Democracy Sausage for this week. We'll be back again next week. And until then, bye for now.